Father, we come to you in the name of, of Jesus, and God, I pray for your anointing now. Um, I pray for um, both the people watching online, people gathered in the room. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want to say to your church, uh, your bride today. Help us be, to be tuned in to the Spirit. Um, I got a lot to say, and um, I'm praying that, that people will hear what you want them to hear. Um, nothing more and nothing less. Um, funnel my words. Funnel my words by the power the Spirit. Pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. The, uh, the first time that me and my family hiked at a Max Patch was uh, in April of 2015. So it was, it was a little while ago. And for those of you who've never been to Max Patch, uh, it is a really beautiful spot right on the Tennessee-North Carolina line. I think you exit the Harmon Den, exit and drive for about half an hour. It's a very short hike, but I mean, you get to the top of this place and it's just you're standing in this huge field and you get 360 degree views of both the Blue Ridge and you can see some of the Smoky Mountains. I mean, I've been to some cool places in my life and I would put it up there with anything. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places. I consider it one of the most beautiful places in, in the world. And um, the first time we went, though, there in April of 2015, we got up there and uh, it was so foggy that we could see absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no view. Not only could you not see uh, a, a view, I mean, like it was so the densest fog I've ever been in. Like it couldn't see, you know, family members of mine walking like five feet in, in, in front of me. Like I remember, I remember um, being up there, and Langston Riggs at the time were both just over a year old, and um, Bethany had Lang. She was carrying him on a like a front, one of the chest baby things, and I had Riggs on a on a backpack, and uh, Bethany and Lang were walking in front, and Lang's he's still got a huge head, right, and he's got this big head and this really thick curly hair and I'm just watching I've stopped to give Riggs a, a blanket because it's freezing too and so I'm trying to put a blanket on Riggs and I look up and I just watch as Lang's head just kind of jumps and bobs into the abyss you know like into oblivion like he's gone I'm like that's it I guess okay I mean it was like something out of a, a science fiction movie or something like that and we got a picture I'm going to show you and this is not I mean it gives you a little taste of how foggy it was that's Ella creeping in the back if you must know and um, that's how um, Bethany had, had Lang. That's how I remember. But even this, we, this picture we took in a clearing because it was the only place that we could actually get a, a photo to take. So, um, but that gives you a little bit of a, uh, of a taste of what our, our first experience there was like. Now, uh, hiking in uh, a really dense fog is different. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. Like there's not a lot of looking up. You're looking down, especially when you're talking about being close to cliffs and stuff. Like you're looking down to measure every step to make sure that each step you're safe to, to take. There's, uh, there's no looking up. There's really no seeing the beauty that you know is out there. But at the time, you can't, you know, you're not uh, exposed to it. And when you're walking in a fog like that, it's, uh, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to slip easy to lose your way, certainly easy to lose sight of the people who you were walking with. You know, I think coming out of this pandemic, uh, a lot of people find themselves in a spiritual fog. Is that fair to say? 
I think like coming out of this thing that there are a lot of people who find themselves in a, in a spiritual fog. And, and honestly, that's to be expected. I mean, really, we've spent the last year not looking up, but looking down, trying to make sure that, you know, we and ours is taken care of. I mean, most of you, especially when we're talking about like sheltering in place, most of you are like with your little pod of people and maybe there's like five or six of you and those are your people and you're just trying to make sure that they're healthy and you're just trying to make sure that they're safe. There haven't been a lot of opportunities in the past year for community, Uh, not a lot of opportunities Uh, for service, not a lot of opportunities to get out of our own heads. And when you're walking in uh, a spiritual fog, it's a lot like walking in a a physical fog. I mean, it becomes really tough to see the beauty uh, around you. You know it's there, but it becomes tough to see it. It's easy to get lost, easy to slip, easy to lose your way, and it's certainly easy to lose sight of the people that you were walking with. One of the ways that I think Satan is going to try to use the pandemic to attack the local church is he's going to try to ensure that once the external fog lifts, that an internal fog remains. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. I think, I think, I think he wants to ensure that once like this pandemic's gone and everything kind of relatively gets back to normal out there, that we're still not seeing clearly up here, that we're still struggling mentally. Like there's still this mental fog. Our thoughts are unclear. The devil, after all, is the prince of darkness and he thrives in the shadows. Contrast that with our God who we're told in 1 John is light and there is no darkness in him right now more than ever i think in the church we need the cross and we need clarity and we need conviction and ultimately i think we need that fog to lift we need it to lift we need to be able to see clearly let me be real with you for a moment church okay i think we often use the excuse that we can't see clearly in an effort to absolve ourselves of responsibility. If, you, if you're a person who takes notes, I think it's pretty good. I mean, I said it, but I still think it's pretty good. We often use the excuse that we don't see clearly in an effort to absolve ourselves of responsibility. I call it the fog problem. And this is what, this is what I mean by that. It's like the, uh, God, by the way of the Holy Spirit, tells us that we're supposed to do something. Like we feel it. We know it. And yet instead of just being obedient and responding to that call accordingly and doing what we know we're supposed to do, we look to heaven and we go, uh, but are you sure? I mean, like, I don't, my mind's foggy. I don't think I'm seeing exactly the way that I'm seeing. I'm not sure that I'm understanding this exactly as you would want me to understand it. And we just keep saying that to the point that we don't end up doing the thing that we're supposed to do. We do the same thing when it comes to studying the, the scriptures, you know? Like we look at these really difficult text and we pretend like we don't understand them so that we don't have to live them out i mean like we look at the words of jesus and jesus talking about you're supposed to love your enemies take everything you have you'd sell it and give it to the poor hey if you don't learn how to forgive other people you won't be forgiven and we're going there's got to be different ways to interpret those texts i mean i just can't i don't understand i mean i see it and i know he said it but there's got to be different interpretations we 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 pretend we we pretend that we don't know Because we think as long as we pretend we don't know, we don't have to do. Am I the only person that does this? Please tell me no, okay? 
We pretend we don't know so that we don't have to do. But here's the thing. Surprise. God knows what we know. Like God already knows what you know. He knows if he spoke a word clearly to you and told you to do something. He knows if you've read the text and understand it or not. Like we're just the only person getting fooled by the fog problem. You. We're certainly not fooling God. The text says in, in James chapter 4, verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. One of the ways that I think Satan's going to try to attack the local church post-pandemic, like in the aftermath of the pandemic, is he wants to keep us in the fog. Even once the external fog lifts and things relatively normal out there, he wants things to just, oh, we're just not clear up here. We don't see things clearly. Another way that I think Satan is going to try to use the pandemic to attack the church is he's going to try to convince you that in hindsight, what you felt in isolation wasn't fear, but it was freedom. It's a big one. One of the ways that I think Satan is going to try to attack the local church post-pandemic, he's, he's going to try to convince you that what you felt, like when the shelter in place in isolation, he's going to try to convince you that what you felt in those moments wasn't fear, but it was freedom. And maybe it goes something like this. You know, it was nice to not have to physically get up and go to church every Sunday. I mean, those slow Sundays were so nice. It was nice to not have to serve, to be free from responsibility, to not have to care about anybody but me and mine. It was nice to be free from accountability, to be able to indulge the sins that I most enjoy indulging without having anybody looking over my shoulder and anybody who loves me enough to be willing to call me out on it. But here's what Satan won't tell you, church. Isolation is where goodness goes to die. Period. Isolation is where goodness goes to die. And what might feel like freedom to you today, I will guarantee you it will eventually give way to despair because we need God and we need each other and our souls depend upon us. I mean, we can only live so long on the dying embers of former friends and a former faith. Eventually, that flame will burn all the way out. For, for this reason, it's the series we're talking about. We is always greater than me. We need God. We need each other. I'm going to say something here that some of you might not like, okay? And it's going to be, it's going to take me a minute to get there, but here it is. Some people go through seasons of doubt and um, times of questioning and moments of deep spiritual deconstruction. And for them, it is absolutely necessary, and it is a beautiful part of their spiritual walk. What I'm talking about is like when people, maybe you um, started following Jesus when you were a kid, you get to the point where you ask all the questions, and so you have a time where you just put everything out on the table piece by piece, you parse it out. Do I believe this? Do I not? Do I really believe it? Or is it what my parents believe? Like you work through that process. And for some people, I think that is absolutely necessary, and I want to affirm you in that. I mean, if you're there now, if you find you in one of those moments where you're like deconstructing a, a little bit, I mean, I love the story in the Old Testament at Peniel when Jacob holds on to God and they wrestle with each other and Jacob leaves that place with renewed faith, but he walks with a limp. I think people who faithfully and earnestly walk through times of spiritual deconstruction, I think for them it's a healthy thing. I think a lot of times they find it spiritually fruitful. You come out the other side of it and you might walk with a limp, but by God, at least you're still walking. You're still going. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you. Hey, keep taking the steps. 
keep moving. I almost, I guarantee you that you will find that to be spiritually fruitful in your life. And, and I have respect for people who are on that spiritual journey because they're sincerely seeking. But then there are other people who find themselves in seasons of doubt and deconstruction because they're lazy and it's convenient. I'll take what other pastors won't say for 300, Alex. R.I.P. Trebek, right? Rest in peace, man. Gone too soon. I think some people subconsciously and unintentionally make the choice to remain in the fog because they recognize that as long as they don't actually believe in anything, they don't have to do anything. As long as they don't believe in anything, they don't have to do anything. I, I honestly believe that the majority of the people, especially in the U.S., who identify themselves as atheists or agnostic, didn't come to that conclusion because they've walked uh, you know, some deep and harrowing spiritual journey, and, and they got to the end of that road only to find absurdity and nothingness. No, I believe that if you really go digging for truth, ultimately you're going to find the pearl of great price. No, I think the majority of people who identify as atheists and agnostic, I think they've landed there because they recognize by saying they don't believe in God, they don't have to live according to his call. No God means no responsibility. No God means no authority. No God means no accountability. I mean, can we at least all admit that this is what makes unbelief desirable? That if there is no God, we just get to be our own gods and we can choose to live according to our own plans and purposes and live out our own passions and pursuits and desires. And that's the life that most people choose. Now, what most people don't realize is that when you give up responsibility and when you give up authority and when you give up accountability, you also lose meaning. It's what Jesus said when a person can gain the whole world and still forfeit their soul. Like if you choose unbelief, if you choose to stay in the fog, you're certainly choosing the path of least resistance, like the easiest way, but you're also stepping out of the kingdom where grace and love and mercy reign. Does it really make sense for us to give up the freedom that Jesus offers us on the cross, for us to give up the forgiveness that we can taste by way of his blood, for us to give up the hope that comes along with the empty tomb just so we can do nothing with our lives and not feel guilty about it. Like, I don't, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I don't think that's a fair trade. I mean, if you choose to follow God, that's going to come with some expectations. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You surrender the expectations, you also surrender God. I mean, it's a, you, you can live a life where you don't have to care about other people. You can live that life. You can live a life expectation-free, but it will be a meaningless existence. And the reality is, a lot of folks are choosing that path, you know? A lot of folks are choosing to remain in the fog. I can tell you, after 30 years of doing this, I think when we're young, the sort of expectations that God puts on our lives when we're kids 
it feels, they feel a little bit like chains, you know, like we're being told we can't do some stuff that other people uh, can do. But the older I get, the more I can tell you, like David, I, I delight in the commands of God. Like, I, I want God to tell me what to do. I want to know what his expectations are. Because every time he's told me, this is, this is what you're supposed to do, and I've walked faithfully into that, it has been fruitful for my life. I'm not saying it's always been easy. I'm not saying there's been pain, but I'm just telling you, after 30 years of walking, like, I love it. I mean, what most of our society is rebelling against, this idea of, we don't want to be told what to do, man. I'm like, please tell me what to do. I surrender to your way. I surrender to your authority because I'm 40 years into this thing and your way is so much better than mine. I found, that, I found that to be true. Two ways I think Satan is going to try to use the pandemic to attack the local church. First, he wants to ensure that even when the external fog lifts, that an internal fog remains, that our brains remain cloudy. And then second, I think he's going to try to convince you that what you felt in isolation, it wasn't fear, but it was freedom. And I would urge you to avoid both of those lies. And to walk in the light, just as the Bible says your God is in the light. So, the question is, how do we get out of the fog? How do we get, if we feel like we're in a spiritual fog, how do we get out of it? Honest answer is, I don't know. All right? I'm going to take a stab at it. I got, I, got a, I got some stuff that I think you can do. I think some steps, some appropriate steps. But the truth is, I really, especially individually for each, I don't know. But I want us to try. In the book of Nehemiah, after the Israelites have been scattered because of Babylonian captivity, so they get enslaved and they're scattered all over the world, all over the land. Ultimately, the Persians come in and they defeat the Babylonians. And the leader of the Persians was named Cyrus the Great. And one of the neat things that Cyrus did for the Israelites is he allowed them to go home. I mean, once the Persians took over, he told the people of Israel that they could return to Jerusalem, they could restore their city, they could rebuild the temple, they could basically be a community, you know, God's, God's people again. And so that's what they did. After a season of what I imagine must have been just an intense spiritual fog, Cyrus gives them the opportunity to go home. And so they all go to Jerusalem where they're going to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. You know the story. If you read the book of Nehemiah, that's when Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around the city for the city's protection against other military forces. But the first thing they do when they get back and everybody is back there together is the priest, Ezra, stands before all of them. He climbs up on a platform. The whole community of people who have returned gathers there before him and he read the law of Moses over them. Verse by verse, line by line, word by word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books, word by word, line by line. And as he's reading this text over the people, it had two, really two effects on them. The first one is, as they heard the word of God being spoken over them, they wept. And they wept because they recognized that when they were in captivity, when they were enslaved, most of them had forgotten what God even said. Like they'd forgotten what God expected out of them. And so now they're hearing and they're realizing, oh, we've broken. We've missed it on a lot of these different things. They wept, but they worshiped. They worshiped because they're going, oh, we're back together. God's given us a second chance. Like here, God and his great goodness has allowed us all to be home. We shouldn't be home. It doesn't make any sense. We still have a foreign king leading, but he's allowed us to come home. And they worshiped because God had given them a second chance. So they wept over the sin in their life, and they worshiped because of God's goodness. 
Now, I, I don't intend to read the entire law of Moses over you today, okay? And part of that is for selfish reasons. I heard Mark whispering about snow cones. I like a good snow cone. I'd kind of like to get there pretty quick, okay? And uh, if we read the first five books, we'd be here for a little while. But what I did want to do is, I was like, I want to search and I want to try to find a text that, that I think gives summary to um, both who Jesus is and who we are. A text that might urge us all uh, to weep and to worship because ultimately I think the best way for us to get out of the fog is to weep and to worship. And so I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23 over you now and I'm praying just let this text wash over you. It's powerful. This is how the text reads. It says Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Church, why should we weep? We should weep because of the sin in our life. We should weep because it is so easy for us to be led astray. We should weep because we often know the right things to do and we choose not to do them. And why should we worship? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why should we worship? Because when we were all like sheep gone astray, our good shepherd pursued us. Why should we worship? Because we have been made right with God. We are righteous, and it had nothing to do with us living rightly. I think the best way out of the fog is for us to weep and for us to worship. I mean, if you don't believe me, try it. Seriously, you can try it right now. You can try it when Cody and the band come back up and they start playing again. You can try it one day when you're at home. Spend some time in prayer, crying out to God, confessing to him the sin that is in your life, repenting of the sins that you have struggled with, and then glory in him. Worship him with all your might and see if you don't see the scales fall off. See if you don't see that cloudiness give way to clarity. Most often, clarity is just on the other side of repentance and reverence. If we want to see clearly, we got to weep and we got to worship. We got to weep and we got to worship. For me, it's a simple six word 
prayer. We go, God, I'm sorry, and you're holy. God, I'm sorry, and you're holy. God, I'm sorry, and you're holy. Please, please remove the fog from my eyes. So about a month ago, a friend of mine from Ohio is here this morning, a guy named Randy. He, uh, he called me. It was in between services. He actually called the Boys and Girls Club, and it's because he was so desperate. You know, our church had helped Randy like six or eight months ago. He had been down here. He was at Tenova North. He'd had a heart attack. He left the hospital. He didn't have anywhere else to go. He walked over to Ingalls, and somebody told him, hey, I think there's a church like right up that way, and I think the pastor might live right next door to the office, and so they've been known to help people. Like, maybe they'll help you. And so I'm just working in my office one day, and he shows up out the window, and he look, I mean, he's a mess because he just got out of the hospital. And so uh, we spent some time together. He stayed at the hospital, ultimately nursed him back to health. He was able to get back to work. Well, Randy calls me uh, maybe a month ago, and he's uh, on his way back down here, and he's on Greyhound bus, and the reason he's coming is because he needs help again, but this time it's because he, he's lost his sight. He's lost vision, and he doesn't feel like he's got anywhere else to go. He doesn't feel like he's got anywhere else to turn. And he's on a bus. That's the reason he's so desperate when he's calling. He's on a bus headed to Knoxville, and he's wondering if anybody will, will be there to help him. So uh, me and Larry Israel at midnight on a Sunday night, we go down to the, uh, to the Greyhound bus station, and we pick Randy up. And when he gets off the bus, he eight months ago he could see. When he gets off the bus, he really can't see him. It's to the point where, like, we're having a mirror layer one at a walk right in front of him, and every curb, you're having to be like, hey, there's a curb right here, you know? So we take him back to the office that night because it's kind of late and let him sleep, sleep, uh, sleep in. And then I go to work on that Monday, and I go downstairs to check on him just to see how he's doing. And he says, hey, he's like, this is right. He's like, I don't want to put y'all out, but this is what I could use from you. He says, if there's any way that you could take me to, like, one of the eye places that'll do eyeglasses in an hour, he goes, maybe if we do that, I can get, he's like, maybe it's just that it's a problem with like my, my specs or whatever. He's like, maybe if, they, if I can get better ones, I can see a little bit, and then I'll be gone. I'll be out of your hair. And so I'm like, all right, that's what we'll do. So we call around. The only place in Knoxville that do our glasses was Vision Works at West Ham Mall. So I drive him out there. We spend the whole day at the, at the mall that day, okay? And he, he goes in there, and um, they, we, we wait forever, and they do the test on him, and his eyes, the cataracts in his eyes are so bad they can't even complete the test. And so they tell him, there's nothing like we can't do anything for you for you here. There's no, you're going to have to have cataract surgery. And not only that, but they tell him that day, they go, the, if you weren't having this problem six, eight months ago, and you're having it with this severity now, you're a couple of months away from not being able to see at all. He leaves, they give him some numbers of some local doctors, like Knoxville doctors, that he can call, but he doesn't have insurance, and so um, they tell him, hey, these places probably don't work, it's very expensive to have this surgery done. So he goes home that day, it's a Monday, and uh, we've been gone all day, and he goes out and he sits uh, on a bench out front of the church office, a little white bench out there right in front of the food pantry. He just sits there, and he watches cars go by the best he can, like just so he can see the lights. He watches the sun go down. I ask him the next morning, I'm like, what were you doing? He's like, I may not be able to see light again. Like, I'm going to soak it in. If this is the last that I'm going to be able to see, there's no way I can afford that. If this is the last I'm going to see, I want to see everything that I can possibly see. Next day. We get together. He gets on the phone. He makes some phone calls to these local places. 
just trying to find somebody maybe who would offer charity, right, to be able to do a surgery for him. And um, nobody around here could do it, but he did talk to one lady. I can't remember what place he talked to, but she was incredible. And she searched his name for him to see, uh, to, to see how, if she could help him. And what she found out is, is by some miracle of God, he still has insurance in Kentucky. Okay, like years ago, he lived in Kentucky, and apparently the Kentucky healthcare system is just as broken as the 10 care system is, okay, because either by the grace of God or the failure of some lady who was supposed to cap him out a long time ago, he got updated, he still had insurance. Not only did he still have insurance, he called WellCare, I'm sitting there with him, he calls WellCare, and they say, yeah, you got it, and it just got updated a month ago. And so the lady says, hey, if you call around to some places in Kentucky, somebody might be able to get you in. A lot of times when it comes to this surgery, not everybody will do it for free, just look, but some of them will. So he goes from one day, I don't have insurance, I'm looking at cars, might be the last things I ever see, to, to hope. He starts making these phone calls around, he calls, he finds a doctor in Middlesbrough. How crazy is this right now? Some of y'all are trying to make doctor's appointments right now, and they're saying, your appointment, yeah, I can get you in in six months. That's how doctor's appointments are working post-pandemic, okay? Randy calls a doctor, I guy in Middlesbrough, and the guy's like, I can see you Monday. We drive up there on Monday. He has to get a COVID test. He gets that. They look at his eyes. They go, dude, you're pretty much blind. And uh, they say, uh, we, we'll do surgery on you Thursday. So on Thursday, Randy and I drive up to Middlesbrough, and in a surgery that took about 15 minutes, Doctor goes in, takes a lens out, puts a new lens in, and he's able to see clearly now out of his right eye. In two weeks, we're going to go back again. They're going to do the same thing with his left eye. Ultimately, when this thing's done, he's going to be able to see better than he was able to see even a year ago. Like, that's, he's going to be able to see that kind of clarity. We get in the car after his surgery, and we're driving back through Harrogate, through Tazewell, and he's just looking at road signs and just telling me what they all say. He's like just reading them off. He's like, that one says this. That one says, hey, I can see their tags. The license plate's like JQR397, you know? I mean, it's just like, because on the way there, he couldn't see anything, but now he, he's on the way back. But do you know how Randy went from not being able to see to being able to see is number one, he owned that he had a problem and he knew he needed help and he reached out to a doctor who could help him. Church, the only way you're going to find yourself getting out of the spiritual fog that a lot of us find ourselves in is if you're willing to own, number one, I'm in the fog. I'm not seeing clearly. My faith doesn't feel like what it felt a year ago or two years ago. I'm struggling. I need help. And then you reach out to the great physician. And in weeping and in worshiping, I believe that clarity will come. I'm not saying this selfishly i'm saying it because i want you all to see clearly i want you to see i mean when he when we were in the van riding back he's like rock is just he's like it's the colors man he's like i didn't see that wasn't seeing the colors it's it's the vividness it's the beauty i want you all when it comes to holy things to see the colors to see the beauty to see the vividness ultimately i'm praying for all of you that you find yourself Walking out of that season of the spiritual fog, not buying into the lies of Satan, but holding on to truth. Our God is light. There's no darkness in him. Pray with me. God, lift the fog. I pray it in Jesus' name. I pray for those people in here who are struggling, 
who it just kind of feels like the lights have gone out for him. I pray that you would lift the fog because you are uh, light. You are the father of lights. And when you show up, the fog lifts. I pray for the person in the room who's just been trying to pretend for a long time that they don't have a problem. I pray today would be the day that they go, no, I've got a problem. I've been struggling. And I pray that they would turn to you and that you would heal their eyes. Same way, you're talking about your son spitting on his hand and rubbing it in the mud and wiping on his and the person's able to see clearly. That's the kind of sight I want. God, what you've done for Randy in the last couple of weeks, physically, I pray you would do for our church spiritually. Bring us clarity and conviction. Help us to be a people who walk faithfully. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.